Welcome to the Family Matters Podcast, where we answer the tough questions about divorce and separation, empowering you to make better decisions for yourself and your family. Welcome to Episode 6 of the Family Matters Podcast. In today's show, we are going to take on one of the toughest topics in family law, domestic violence. I'm your host, Benjamin Bryant, an accredited family law specialist with Bryant McKinnon Lawyers. I'm here today with my partner in crime, Heather McKinnon. Hi, Heather. Hi, Ben. And we are also joined by our special guest, Dr. Doug Andrews, who is very well qualified to talk about today's sensitive topic. Doug is an adult psychiatrist at Baringa Hospital in Coffs Harbour. He is the founding clinical director of Binderay Clinic, a private mental health facility within the Baringa Hospital. And he helped establish a PTSD group, psychotherapy program for armed services and emergency services personnel. In his practice, he has frequently treated victims of family violence and has an in-depth understanding of the mental health impacts of physical and emotional abuse. He is with us today to educate us about the effects of domestic violence and how to heal the wounds it leaves behind. We are delighted to have someone of Doug's expertise help us tackle this difficult subject. Welcome to our show, Doug, and thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. All right, we might get started. There's a lot of things that encompass family violence, so we might start off with some definitions. And I've got the definition of family violence as defined in the Family Law Act, Doug, because even though you are exposed to violence in terms of your practice every day in different areas, but for Heather and I, um, it's squarely to do with the Family Law Act. So under the Act, family violence means violent, threatening, or other behaviour by a person that coerces or controls a member of the person's family, or causes the family member to be fearful. In your view, Doug, what constitutes family violence and what are the different forms it can take? Look, I think that's a good starting point. And, you know, when we think about violence, we, all, you know, we always think about somebody being hit or assaulted. And I think we actually need to broaden it, even using that definition and thinking about terms of uh, family abuse rather than family violence, because some of the things which occur can be very damaging to the people involved and not involve overt violence. And I, I think that we need to look at that broad definition. So we're looking at things um, like coercion, like control, um, people having their, their life micromanaged by somebody. Something we always have to remember is that every relationship starts with hope. Um, mm. Mostly we're looking at trust, we're looking at intimacy, we're looking at love. So we start off on a good ground and then there's a deterioration and it doesn't deteriorate immediately into striking or assault. It, it starts with things like control, isolating the, the victim of the violence or, or the, the abuse uh, from family and from friends, um, threats, intimidation to induce fear, again to control behavior. And that kind of psychological undermining, that humiliation, um, arbitrary rules, inconsistent responses, gaslighting, making people mistrust their own view of their own lives, of their own reality. Um, surveillance and stalking is incredibly destructive and intimidating to people before we arrive at things like physical or sexual assault, which are the, the high end in a way, but not always as damaging as some of the other things that occur. And I guess it's 
family violence has changed shape or you know what constitutes family violence or acts of family violence have changed over the years because one of the biggest ones we see now of course that Heather and I see it almost on a daily basis is image abuse or revenge porn or the yes. like which you know of course wasn't necessarily available yeah. um, so much um, back in the day. And uh, I think one of the things that um, I see particularly with women who come to visit is that initial falling into the world of the abuser and them thinking that's normal. So things like always getting picked up from work because the the abuser doesn't want any you know any chance of the person getting into any sort of social situation they're not controlling. Yes. But the biggest one that you see most commonly is that economic control where women will sit with me and talk about how even if they go and do the shopping, the husband will want to see the receipts and they'll mm. want to tick off every item. And it becomes such a pattern that initially the person will say to me, oh, we've just had this financial management system in place. And it's quite revealing to see how that behaviour is normalised over years, uh, where it gets to the point where the person has no economic independence whatsoever. They can't go and visit their family on the weekend because they don't have any money for the petrol in the car. Mm. But the combined household income might be a hundred grand or something. Mm. It's quite pernicious and um, it is really interesting how the behaviours are not often identified by the victim as being unusual. And they are normalised and they often start off in a way which is perceived to be benign. You know, he's paying a lot of attention to me. Mm. He's protective. Yes, he gets jealous, but that's because he loves me. Mm. He's looking after the family finances because he's concerned about our future. Mm. And these things evolve then into abusive control. Mm. You mentioned revenge porn. That's about humiliation. Mm. And it's also about um, intimidation. I have these pictures of you. If you don't do whatever it is yeah. that I want you to do, that I'm going to release them and I'm going to send them to your family, to your workplace, mm. to your school or whoever it is that I can that will damage you the most. And on that, uh, a common misconception is that family violence stops at separation. Oh, I wish. Um, <laughs> it doesn't, of course, especially the coercion and the control and like the example that you just gave with the image abuse. So let's tackle the elephant in the room when we're talking about family violence. Doug, why does it so often take so long for people to walk away from violent relationships? That's a really good question. And I think the first thing we have to do is just acknowledge how difficult it is to leave the relationship and that it's, it's normal to make many, many attempts before you actually successfully extricate yourself from an abusive or a violent relationship. Because every time it happens, you feel like a failure. And it happens for lots of reasons. I mean, we're in a relationship and there's this hope that somehow the relationship will work out. There's a sense of self-blame. You know, I haven't been a good enough wife or partner. If I had just, and, you know, make your own list of things that you mm. could have just done, then, then maybe he wouldn't be so angry with me. They think that they can repair. They think that they can help. There's this kind of nurturing that goes on where if I just try hard enough, I can turn him into that lovely person who was so charming in the first you know, weeks or months that we met. 
by the time that people recognize that they're in an abusive or violent relationship, their, their self-esteem is attacked, their sense of reality is attacked. They are often very dependent emotionally, financially. They're frightened they're going to risk their children's well-being. A child should have a father or a mother, whoever the perpetrator is. Um, they're worried about the family court and what is going to be said about them and, and whether they will lose control um, of that. And they just get used to it. You mentioned, Heather, that this becomes their reality. And we also have to remember that many victims of domestic violence grew up in homes of domestic violence. And it's kind of normal. You know, dad gets drunk and he gets angry and he smacks mom. Well, you know, I'm mom now. This is what happens. And people have that kind of valued-based thing that, you know, I married, I made a vow, I made a promise, if you're religious especially so. They're also in a situation where I see the more severe end, where they feel like they have been failed. They've gone to the emergency department, they've talked to their GP, they've gone to the police, they've had an AVO, and still they've got this guy in their house. Mm. And, and they don't think that anybody can actually help them, so they're frightened. And separation is scary, Doug. Is it a case of perhaps better the devil you know for some people? It's scary and it's expensive. It's hard to run a household as a single parent. And if you've got young kids, you may not be able to work. The welfare in Australia is not that great. Social services for people in these circumstances aren't that great. I have a house now. How am I going to get emergency housing? Mm -hmm. You know how long that takes. So mm -hmm. it's very, very challenging. You know, the biggest message we can give people is try and break the pattern. If you're there and you've got a high level of tolerance for um, some of these behaviours because that's what you experience in childhood, please, please imagine what it's then going to be like in the third generation. Mm. That modelling of normality for children is absolutely critical. The kids that hear it and see it are likely to replicate it as adults. And that's the big message, make the break, even if it's been in your family for generations. Mm. There are lots of supports around, and today what we're showing is there's a lot of science around how we can help people. Yeah, and we have to recognise too that a lot of men and women who have grown up in houses which are abusive actually don't become abusers. They actually can be exemplary and vow that mm -hmm. I am never going to raise mm -hmm. my children in that kind of way. And they do that and we, we should recognize yeah. that. And Doug, in your opinion, is separation or divorce the only answer for people caught in violent or abusive relationships? If not, what other paths can people try first? It's very easy to become disheartened and, and even nihilistic about how this goes. I guess the first thought that comes into my head is that in every circumstance, safety for yourself and for your children is paramount. And if you're in a situation where you can't have that, then, then you probably do need to get out, whether that's temporarily or permanently. Not every abusive action or, or violent action is uh, the same. Mm -hmm. You know, some people are habitually violent. Sometimes this really is a, a one-off thing, an argument that got out of control. Some people do have the ability to change. People can stop drinking alcohol, they can stop drugs, they can get counselling, they can do all sorts of things. Um, but we shouldn't be too rosy. It's, 
if you're in a situation of repeated violence where, where you're at risk, where your children is at risk, then you have to attend to that before you attend to anything else. Relationship counseling is challenging in these circumstances and it only works if everybody comes to it with that attitude of I'm going to be honest and I'm going to wear and accept my own responsibility for my own actions and both partners have to do that. Whenever I, I get despair is when I see a couple sitting down and they're both actively blaming one partner you end up coercively kind of ganging up on one person, they withdraw and nothing happens. Everybody has to come to it with honesty. It's really difficult. It's not impossible. Lots of relationships get repaired. Um, I would argue probably that at the extreme end, that's not the action that I would recommend, but in the middle, yes. Mm -hmm. okay. Under the Family Law Act, the court or the Family Law Act wants parents uh, to be able to try and communicate or mediate before making any application to a court. For those parents, I think it's absolutely important to know that if you ever do read or are informed that you have to do mediation, that there is an exception. The, the Family Law Act actually provides an exception that in allegations of family violence, or perhaps even if there is a different level of you know, a balancing or bargaining power or something like that, that you're not actually required to do the mediation. And obviously, all cases of family violence are different and people react differently to physical or psychological abuse. But in general terms, what sort of impact does domestic violence have on the partner experiencing violence? Look, it's, it's profound. Um, people lose their self-confidence. They lose their self-esteem. Um, they often, through repeated psychological, demeaning, humiliating comments. They, they start to internalize some of that. It impairs their functioning in the world, in their roles as a parent, um, as a, a worker, as a student. All of the things that they do, they tend to do um, less well. Again, that affects their self-confidence and their self-esteem. We start to see people exhibiting symptoms of depression or anxiety, sleeplessness, um, those sorts of things. And people who are subject to repeated violence especially can develop trauma-based conditions such as PTSD or complex PTSD. We see that in adults and children. One of the examples you just gave, Doug, was um, parents' ability to work. Okay. Heather, you've have obviously some experience with almost 40 years of experience in the family law arena about how domestic violence can impact a person's ability to remain in the workforce or contribute to the family. Certainly, um, Doug and I have had some cases where women's ability to function would be at the lower range. So it becomes important to understand what functioning is when we're looking at property settlements particularly because often these women are older their chance of recovery to a level where they can be economically independent is almost zilch and so we have to look at then should they be given more of the amassed capital particularly things like superannuation because the damage that's occurred to them means that they need um, significant financial support going forward. So they're in the um, more extreme areas of the work that we do, 
But it's certainly important for people to understand that if you're in a situation where you really have been brought to your knees in terms of your ability to function in the workforce, that is something that family lawyers have to look at getting expert reports from people like Doug so that we can understand what is their prognosis. Are they likely to ever be able to re-enter the society fully or is the damage so severe that that's unlikely? So that's the point here that we talk about. But um, certainly in that recovery phase, if it's a younger person, there may need to be a look at whether or not they need additional assistance, say, to work part-time when they've got little ones, because the last thing we want is someone who's got um, a struggle to regain mental health, being overloaded, doing full-time work. So they're the sorts of things where the professions overlap. We need um, Doug's profession to help us understand What's the time frame? What is this person's prognosis? Mm-hmm. Are we going to get them back to functioning in the short term or is it going to be a much longer term? Yeah. We also see people who feel it's unsafe for them to remain in the workplace or even the town that they live, mm-hmm. which disrupts their vocational trajectory, even if they were feeling that they could go to work. They lose income, they lose mm-hmm. yeah. place in the world because of that. Yeah. And Doug, what about the children? How does exposure to a violent or abusive relationship between parents impact on a child's development? Well, I I think for children it's it's profoundly damaging because they're in the process of developing their personality. They don't have uh, a a solid sense of self. They, They haven't completed their education. So we start to see it damaging them at a fundamental level. They're prone to the conditions like PTSD that that adults are prone to. They're prone to getting anxiety and depression and things like that. But they also can develop those personality-based pathologies like emotional dysregulation, like avoidance, hypervigilance, just general fear in the world. Um, Kids who are traumatized sometimes traumatize others. Their behavior becomes difficult in the school. They can become bullies or they're victimized. They become victims of bullies because they're seen to be a target because they're insecure or they're anxious or or whatever. Um, They tend to do less well with with their education. They tend to form relationships in, in a less solid manner. So they may have fewer friends. They don't participate as well in extracurricular activities. So they get very damaged. Mm. They can feel responsible. It's their fault that their parents don't get along. It's their fault that somebody in the family is yelling or screaming or drinking alcohol or violence. Sometimes they're told it's their fault. So we go back to safety first and you have to look to your own safety, but you have to look to your children's safety first. And I know we've touched on this topic briefly in previous podcasts, haven't we, Heather, in respect to how conflict, especially at separation, um, can impact on children. And a lot of those things really ring home what you just said then, Doug. The federal government has recently announced another inquiry into the family court system. Pauline Hansen has advocated for the inquiry on the grounds that men are unfairly treated by the courts and she has specifically suggested that some women fake domestic violence claims in order to help them at court. I wonder if you have ever seen this sort of thing being done. That's a very challenging question. (laughs) (laughs) I have sometimes sat in my office 
and wondered if I have any way of knowing what is true. I'm sure you've, you've experienced it as well. Um, the research, as I understand it, doesn't support that abuse by lying to the court is that common. Of course it happens. Um, my understanding is that the estranged non-custodial parent is more likely to be the person lying to the court than, than the person who has custody of the children. Um, does it happen? I'm sure it does. Have I caught somebody out in it? I'm not sure that I have, um, but have I been deceived? I'm guessing I have. So yes, it's a problem, but I think it's an overstated problem. Um, I think we have to recognize that people find the court system to be very intimidating and frightening for them. And I think often people go away from the court feeling like they haven't had the result that they hoped that they would get. And I think that happens even when the courts are fair. So, And I, I think in this field it's important to indicate that the angry man who is the perpetrator is often very competent in lobbying politicians, in lobbying mm. the police. They're, they're the squeaky wheel that politicians are getting in their office every day. Mm. So it's very hard for our federal politicians because, as I understand it, one of the most common um, constituent interviews will be with a disgruntled family law litigant. So the people in Canberra that are looking at this field every day when they're back in their electorates are getting these people in their office saying, why was me, I'm being hardly done by, they're not seeing the little children or the battered women. Mm. They don't know how to make an appointment with their federal member. I think we have to recognise that most of the severe violence, it, it is women who are the victims. They are very traumatised. It's very difficult for them to negotiate their way through systems. The men often have more financial resources and aren't traumatised. Mm. And some people like Pauline Hanson, of course, say it's, it's a gendered argument, mm. but as we say on a daily basis, Heather, nowhere in the Family Law Act does it say mother or father mm -hmm. or male yeah. or female. Yeah. And you mentioned the research before, Doug. I actually took the opportunity just before the podcast to get a few of the stats. So the first one in relation to prevalence is that during the year from 2016 to 2017, 17 adults were hospitalised every day due to an assault by a partner or other family member. And this one is striking. One woman is killed every nine days by their current partner. If you reduce it to current partner or former partner, it's one woman a week. For fathers or men, it's one man is killed every 29 days by their partner. And one in six women in Australia have experienced physical or sexual violence from a current or previous cohabitating partner. And for men, it's one in 16. And 25% or a quarter of women have experienced emotional abuse from a current or previous partner. And it's 5% for men. So some pretty alarming statistics there. Look, I, I think it says that violence isn't necessarily gendered, mm -hmm. but clearly women are very much the victims of this more than men. No violence is acceptable. And Doug, how do people go about getting help to heal the wounds after family violence? Look, that's difficult. I, I think that they find it very difficult to trust systems. This is ubiquitous in mental health that people try to get help 
multiple times before they succeed in getting very much help. People in medical and emergency services get frustrated because they see people going back to the perpetrator. Um, and, I, and I think that's a failure to understand what's really going on and how disempowered these people are. Um, it takes a lot of courage to make a change when your circumstances are so difficult and most people fail the first time they try. But what services exist? Medical services, the police, emergency departments, school counselors, mental health services, etc., are all points that you can go to to talk about these things and help. We, we have access line numbers, and I gather we'll give out some of those numbers at the end of the we show. Will. There are some specialist services around um, in Coffs Harbour, Warren at Domestic and Family Violence Services. Um, family and community services often get involved, legal services, psychologists, psychiatrists. Mm. So there's, there's a lot of people that have some finger in this in a way of helping. And having said that, I don't think that there's enough and I don't think that we do very well mm -hmm. in this. I, I think we need things like easy access to refuges, emergency housing, responses from the police that are, are compassionate, empathic and understanding. Um, not that the police don't try to do those things, but I think that's not the experience of many of the people who um, have to deal with violence in their own homes. I think it's important to call out to the presentation sometimes of victims is not calm and their ability to get help from people um, who are not necessarily highly trained is impaired because they're not seen as an attractive personality. If you're a trauma victim and you're scared of the world, you're like an injured animal. And the problem that we have is in our culture, it's my experience that the presentation of the injured animal to some of these services means that they're not given the access to help that's required because they're not good advocates for their own needs. Mm. And we have to be really, really careful that we have no judgment when we're trying to help people. That's a really good point. And you know, remember that most family violence isn't reported. And most of the presentations that we see in emergency medical circumstances are not explicit. They're not coming in saying, my husband beat me up. Mm -hmm. They're sometimes denying why their injuries exist or they're coming into the emergency department because they've self-harmed, attempted suicide, mm -hmm. or they're intoxicated. It can be very difficult mm -hmm. to identify those people even if the questions are asked, mm. please visit the emergency department on any Friday night and everybody is flat to the wall. So if you're not explicit, they may mm. not ask. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Doug, for your help today. And thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners. We hope you found this podcast helpful. If anything in this podcast has raised concerns for you, then the Domestic Violence Line is available at 1800 656 463. And it's a 24-hour confidential telephone and online counselling service for people affected by domestic and family violence. We will also put links to a number of other services in the show notes for this episode. 
Next month, we are going to dedicate an entire show to your questions. So if you have specific questions about divorce, children's matters, property settlement, mediation, domestic violence, or any aspect of family law, then send us your questions via Facebook Messenger or by emailing familymatters at bryantmckinnon.com.au. Goodbye for now, and we hope to have your ears against next month. The information provided on this podcast is general in nature and not a substitute for personal legal advice. We recommend you consult an accredited family law specialist.